Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Hello, hello, and welcome. Welcome to the Nose. It's our end of the week cultural roundtable. We no longer sit at a roundtable or any sort of table. Uh, we are dispersed, but we still have the Nose, and we still have a good time. Uh, and I'm very excited today to be talking to two of my favorite, I think maybe even, were you guys original first episode Nose panelists? I feel like the first episode of The Nose included Jacques Lamar, a playwright, director of client services at Buzz Engine. He wasn't, nobody knew what Buzz, there was no Buzz Engine when on the first Nose, but that's what he does now. Uh, Irene Papoulis, who teaches writing at Trinity College. I think Trinity College was founded several years after we did the first Nose. Uh, she's joining us via Skype. So, Jacques, am I correct? Were you guys like on the first? I, th- I think I'm thinking like you two guys and Rand Cooper might have been the first nose panel ever. We were the I, first. We yeah, were and it wasn't even called the nose at first. What was I it think. called? What was it? What was it called? I it was think called, it was just. It was called Mikhail, Mikhail's Navy, and then we just. It turns out there was a. We had a copyright problem. Um, I thought it was the nose from the get go. Okay, maybe it was. Okay, sorry. It's well. This Fucking is oral. This is we're doing oral history right now, <laughs> and any any number of scenarios could conceivably be true, uh, and it would be too much trouble to to find out which one actually is true. All right. Well, anyway, two of the three original nose panelists are here with us. Uh, low those many years ago, uh, they got it all going, uh, and uh, they're going to keep it going today. So a little bit later on the show, I don't really know how this is going to go. We're, we're going to talk about a song which we do occasionally on this show. It happens to be the number one song in the country, uh, and it happens to have debuted on the charts at number one, which is very difficult to do if your name isn't Justin Bieber or something. But this is by a person who is putting a song on the charts for the first time ever. So that's really hard to do, just to rocket instantly to number one. And it stayed there now for two weeks. Um, The difficulty that we face uh, is that I don't believe that this song was aimed at any at any of the three of us but uh perhaps we'll still be able to converse about it and if not i'll just get a lot of emails all right so but we're going to begin with things two two cultural products that i think we are very very well equipped to discuss and we're very well versed in they are each very new york centric uh, products uh, they are both series that are streaming uh, right now uh and the first of them is called pretend it's a city uh, it is martin scorsese's love letter to and attempt to showcase fran lebowitz uh, who's a long time mordant new york wit uh, and, and well, we'll come to that. Uh, and then uh, after that, we're going to do a how-to with John Wilson. Uh, these series couldn't be more similar and they couldn't be more different. And I know that doesn't really um, make any sense, but then a lot of things don't. So so how permanent a feature, uh, Kat, we're going to skip to A2 right away. How permanent a feature on the New York scene is Fran Lebowitz. I direct your attention to John Mulaney and the Sack Lunch Bunch. This was a, people listening to this don't know, I'm a big fan of this. This is a special that John Mulaney, John Mulaney did kind of as a an homage to and a mockery of um, things like Free to Be You and Me, you know, those sort of really kind of kids are really great kind of kids series, uh, I think from like the 90s or something. Uh, anyway, here's John Mulaney talking to one of the kids. What you're about to see is a children's TV special, and I made it on purpose. 
Blitz we saw on the subway today. Friendly Blitz. Yes. So the joke here is that a little kid would have any idea who Friendly Blitz is, uh, but uh, but a lot of people do. So pretend it's a city is uh, Martin Scorsese is uh, I think Friendly Blitz's biggest fan as far as I can tell, uh, and so it's um, him and Friendly Blitz sitting around the Players Club and going to the New York City Public Library uh, and walking around New York. And every once in a while, there's kind of this weird, almost random clip. That's dropped in, usually from some old black and white thing. Uh, and it's just Fran Leibowitz, in a very amusing way, I think, complaining. Uh, so before we get the comments from the panel, let's hear what that sounds like. Now we'll go to clip B. I guess it's B. Does it say B1 here? B1, okay. Do you tend to look down at people? Do I tend to look down at people? You mean am I snob? There are certain kinds of snobberies that I think are bad. Of course, those are not the kind of snobberies I have. Okay, like the kind of snobberies I have have nothing to do with, you know, who is your father, you know, where'd you go to school, where'd you grow up? It has to do with, do you agree with me about this? That's what it has to do with. Or you think that? No. Even though I know that people very frequently are very, um, not irritated is too mild a word, infuriated by me, um, it's, it does somewhat surprise me because so what? Like, who am I? Am I making decisions for you? You know, it's like, I'm not in charge of anything. I can understand being angry at me when I say things like, people should do this or this should happen, if, if people thought that I could change it. Right. But of course, if I could change it, I wouldn't be so angry. The anger is, I have no power, but I'm filled with opinions. The perfect self-description. So, uh, Jacques, just to begin here, I mean, I think one of the really pressing questions, the one that might determine whether a person likes this or not, is whether you think... Fran Leibowitz is funnier and, and has more penetrating observations than two or three of your funniest and most penetrating friends that you might have over for dinner back when you used to do things like that. And, and, and to me, I, I think that's ultimately what we have to decide for ourselves. So how did that go for you? Um, you know, I, I, uh, I watched the first episode quite excited because I, um, She's someone I've, I've always kind of known sort of in the background. And uh, when I worked full time at the Mark Twain House and Museum, I attempted to get her to come do a program for the museum, only to find out that it cost at the time $35,000 <laughs> to get her to leave the island of Manhattan. Wow. Um, having watched the first episode, I am thankful that we did not bring her uh, <laughs> for $3,500. I mean... There's no denying that she's smart and that she's witty. Um, and, you know, if you measure it by Martin Scorsese's laughter, she's, you know, hilarious. Um, but, you know, I, I, I walked away from that first episode thinking she's the kind of person that if I was at a dinner party would suck all the oxygen out of the room. Or if I was in New York at a restaurant and she was sitting at the next table, I would, you know, uh, asked to move. So uh, I'm not. Uh, she she I'm would have already asked to move away from you. I mean, that's part of the Fran Leibowitz. <laughs> she would have know. been drawing attention away from me and that would have not been good. Um, you know, I, uh, it, it was very interesting because, you know, as, as she's, you know, considered a humorist. And again, I didn't really know why she was famous. I just knew that she was famous. Then I realized she wrote two books and then has had writer's block in terms of book writing since the, what, 70s or 80s? Yep. 
um, that, uh, you know, I think that, that, um, you know, I, I, I sat there, I laughed maybe once or twice across the three episodes that I watched. And then when I hit the third episode, I was like, I was about 20 minutes into it and said, I can't take it anymore. So I know it's, she's not. <laughs> wow. So Irene, you had a different reaction, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I had kind of, uh, well, um, Jacques, were you done with your point? Yeah, no, 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 no go content? ahead, go ahead. I'm sorry, I thought that uh, yeah. Okay, so I kind of had, it's funny because when I first, um, when I watched the first episode a few weeks ago, um, I thought, eh, I don't really want to watch this. I don't think she's that funny. So I sort of had a similar reaction, but I'm so glad I watched more because as I got into it, and I watched all uh, seven of the episodes, as I got into it, I started to really, really like her and like the whole spectacle of her much, much more, you know, not because she was funny, because at first it's sort of like, you know, in a way trying to do this, almost like the kind of thing Seinfeld does, you know, or there's just like so many other people that do that are funny in a way that she tries to be funny that isn't as funny. She's not as funny necessarily, but there's something about her um you know, who she is as a person. And I think that's why her writing didn't do that well, because it's not that she's a good writer. It's not, you know, and it's a good question. Why is she famous? She's famous because of her shtick, you know, like she's the curmudgeon that's going to be grumpy about everything. And there's something, you know, and even to say something like, I'm not the only, the kind of snob I am is, you know, I, I, I'm a snob in terms of whether you agree with me or not. And I was thinking about that, like, in a way, that's how everybody's a snob, you know, mm -hmm. do you agree with me or not? And she just throws out things like that, but it's not any, anyone, in, you know, like she hated, she hates the lawn chairs in Times Square, you know, and I love one of her things that I actually thought was funny. She, cause she sort of built up this thing. Like now there's New York city. So different there's lawn chairs. Nobody comes to New York because they want to sit in a lawn chair and they spent all this money on it. And there's all these plants and there's all these trinkets all over the city. It's turning into my grandmother's apartment, you know? <laughs> and so I don't know. I and, so so I was more I, I liked her and I also liked the show with Scorsese, but that's I guess we'll get into that. Yeah. Well I, I will say, Jacques, she does explain in a later episode, I don't know if uh, this was one of the ones that you saw, what she was planning to do with that money she was gonna get from you uh at the Mark Twain yes. house. She yes. says this whole thing about how I leave first of all, she talks about how she would never go on vacation and like go to the airport and stuff like that. And that she just wonders how horrible are these people's lives that they would need to, you know, pack up a whole bunch of stuff and then stand in line and have people yell at them and frisk them and stuff like that. And then be packed like sardines on a plane. How, how much, how much do they hate their actual lives that they would go do this as a way to relax and, and have fun. But she does say that she goes off on these speaking junkets, these speaking gigs. She goes, I, I leave the city and I get money. And I come back and I give it to the building uh, because she lives in this pretty nice apartment, pretty nice New York apartment. And the, the whole point uh, of getting a lot of money from the Mark Twain house or anybody else is just to turn it over basically to that building, according to her. I, I will say this, that, you know, as somebody who was writing humor and was having humor published, I, I had two books of humor published in the 1980s. I mean, she she was really treated as kind of a gold standard. I didn't particularly like either one of those books, but she was really highly regarded for those books. And it was, there was a lot of, well, what comes next? Is she going to do a novel? Is she going to do this? And then she didn't do anything except kind of turn into this person who, 
is sort of enjoyable to listen to. I mean, she complains about things in, in an amusing and enjoy and an enjoyable way, where she really is, I think, kind of. I mean, Jacques, there's a way in which she does take delight. In I, we don't want to spoil too many of her lines, but at one point she's talking about the subway system, and I can't remember what the what the lead up is. But she goes, "We take the Dalai Lama one trip on a New York subway to turn into a raving maniac." Uh, but what she's really talking about is how much she likes all that. You know, I mean, there, there's the way in which she loves so much of what she's complaining about. Yeah, well, and and you know, it's her universe is New York, mm. and so. You know, there's this obvious love, hate, but most, you know, mostly love for New York. And um, and that was my big takeaway from from watching the show was how much in this pandemic I miss going into New York mm. and miss, you know, even though I can, um, it, it just didn't hasn't seemed like a wise decision. And if you were to go down there you could walk around, but you wouldn't really be able to enjoy it the way we all enjoy New York. And so, um, you know, I, as we were watching the show and they're showing footage of her on stage at various events in New York city that, um, that she was having a, um, you know, that New Yorkers love to talk about New York and, um, and be self-referential. And I think that's why she is so, you know, potentially beloved in the city is that, you know, people are kind of responding to a mirror in a certain sense. I, I totally agree with that. I, I remember driving to visit some friends of mine who lived on the Upper East Side. This is decades ago. And I, I drove uh, off the highway, uh, drove to East 69th Street or wherever it was, pulled up at 229 uh, East 69th Street, if that's where it was, like right in front of the awning and got a parking space right there. Like, I, and, and the the husband had come out like to guide me, you know, to help me find a parking space that was going to take forever. And I just I just pulled up and I just pulled into the first place, space I saw it was right in front of their building. And for the rest of the weekend, I was kind of introduced that way. You know, he's this guy drew, drove from Connecticut and he just pulled into the space right in front of our apartment. People were so much more interested in that than anything I had done in my life. There was no accomplishment that I could cite that was inter as interesting and as amazing to them as that. But, you know, Irene, I think we should say a little bit more about what is likable about this. And then maybe we'll talk a little yeah. bit about Scorsese's approach to it, too. But, I mean, she is very, very fast on her feet. You know, I mean, and those things where you see her in front of a live audience and somebody says, how would you describe your lifestyle? And she says, well, first of all, I would never use the term lifestyle. Um, <laughs> yeah. And she's just got all those kind of spring loaded. I, I, at the age of 70, she has no trouble, you know, just completely just dazzling. I mean, maybe it's been edited to speed it up a little bit, but uh, I, I, she is funny, right? She, Yeah, I mean, and I, I, I think, you know, that's true. She is funny. And the whole, you know, that one of her, you know, part of her shtick is she doesn't like lifestyle. She doesn't like wellness. She doesn't like spas. She's a smoker. You know, she doesn't like all this, all these people that are trying to do, you know, improve themselves and all that. But, um, but I also think part of why she's, she's fascinating is because she's kind of living the life that so many New Yorkers wish they could li live, which is, you know, like she said, like a lot of English majors say, if only I could get paid just for sitting around and reading. And she says that, like, too bad I can't. But she gets paid for walking around and looking at things and talking about them, period, you know. And 
so she she's found a way to get thirty five thousand dollars for a performance, you know, so that she can do that. And and that's kind of like the, the like the the ideal fantasy of how you want to live if you're an artist in New York. You, well, you want to do your art, but you want to or just people who move to New York. That's the most fun thing about living in New York, wandering. Around. But for most people, you can do that, you know, just as a tiny percentage of how you have to spend the rest of your time. But it's her whole life. Jacques, I want to say, I want to, yeah, I want to say, first of all, yeah, I think that's right. She's a flaneur, you know, and I mean, and she's a New York flaneur instead of a a Paris one. Jacques, I do want to say one thing that having done, you know, I don't know, 30, 35 gigs for you at the Twain House and having only ever been paid anything at all on one occasion that I can think of. I want to thank you for not paying Fran Lebowitz $35,000. That would really, that really would have bothered me, I suppose. Never, yeah. never. And, you know, I mean, the thing is, I, at first when I was watching it, and again, I sat down very excited to watch it. I wasn't prepared for the level of disappointment that washed over me. But, um, A, I mean, I think that Scorsese shoots the city beautifully. And my initial reaction kind of brought me back to this moment as as a you know young man in growing up in New Hampshire, watching Woody Allen films. That this is the the New York of Woody Allen, and where smart people are talking about Kierkegaard or whatever over dinner in cafes, and you know walking around Manhattan, and it's beautifully framed and what have you, and. And so I was I was excited because we're not allowed to like Woody Allen anymore um, to watch, you know, to be back in that world. Mm. And then I just realized that she wasn't good company. Um, Um, Yeah, we should say a little bit more about how Scorsese handles all this. Irene, what were you going to say? Well, yeah, actually, it's connected to Scorsese because I think. One of the things I found really interesting were the scenes where Scorsese was interviewing her on stage. And whenever, you know, he did, as he said, laugh, he laughed so much at things she said, and he does think she's hilarious. But every time, every once in a while, he would say something, well, I did X, Y, or Z. And the way she responded, she didn't respond the way, you know, probably any of us would have been, oh, really? Tell me more about that. You know, she just kind of like blocked it off. And whenever anyone tried to respond with their own story, she kind of, she was less, unless she could make it into something that would highlight her. She just seemed quite uninterested in what other people had to say. So I, I thought, wow, that's an interesting friendship, you know, of she is always performing. And I agree with you, Jacques, that I wouldn't want to hang out with her unless it was just to, you know, sit and listen, you know, so she, it seems like she has trouble being, she would have trouble being a friend in the sense of listening to you because it just kind of performing all the time, which I imagine she does, you know, every, all the time in her life, even with her friends, you know, I don't know, you know, I mean, who knows, but yeah, she wouldn't be a very interesting companion to have dinner with it would, if it were just the two of you, because your, your eyes would glaze over after a while, I think. And maybe I'm doing the Fran Lebowitz thing and making it about me as to whether or not I would want to spend time with her. But, um, you know, and the thing is, I don't, I don't want to slag off you know, the series as something that is not of a good quality because I believe it is. And, you know, I have a friend who, you know, who posted on Facebook that he watched it and loved it. And it was just like in awe of her. So I think that it really rises and falls on whether or not you caught into her, um, you know, uh, her, not necessarily her view of life, because like, you know, I look at 
someone acerbic like Mark Twain and I want to spend and have spent, you know, hours and weeks and months of year, years of my life, you know, absorbing him. Whereas I, I had a hard time taking 25 minutes of her. Right. We have to shift mm-hmm. gears here uh, or we because I, I think actually we're talking about the less interesting in some ways of the two products. Uh, one thing that I will say about this, though, is this is the kind of show you can kind of have on, you know, and, and be like maybe doing some other stuff and everything. And just once in a while, you know, brightening and laughing at something that she says. I don't think I'm going to diss Marty a little bit here. I don't think that his use of found footage is particularly artful. It feels a little phoned in to me. Uh, there's one episode that ends w- with a black and white conversation uh, between Duke Ellington and Leonard Bernstein, which is very fascinating in its own right, or could be anyway. Uh, but it has n- almost nothing to do with it. Just like he just has that. He's going to throw it in there at the end. Um, and, and there's sort of a lot of that stuff. Whereas as we shift gears here towards John Wilson, uh, we are we are now talking about somebody who you've never heard of before. Uh, no one had ever heard of John Wilson before. He was not Fran Leibowitz. He was not Marty Scorsese. And he has launched this series, which it really has become quite a phenomenon. And it's a series which is almost impossible to describe. I, I guess I will attempt to describe it. This is a series in which he begins each episode with a theme similar to the Fran Leibowitz series. The episodes are about 25 minutes long. Uh, he begins each uh, each episode with a purported theme, uh, how to do small talk, how to make the perfect risotto, how to split a check. Um, but it's not really about that. What it is is a series of conversations with people, in, in, most of whom don't really seem to quite understand what they're doing or what kind of in person is talking to them. It's intercut with just amazing amounts of found footage uh, of New York City uh, or any other place that he goes, but particularly New York City, just rats crawling out of garbage bags. And, I mean, just like, you know, gross stuff that Fran Lebowitz would really go out of her way to avoid. So, um, you know, and it's, it's, I says I can't wait to hear the panelists try to sort of uh, explain this a little bit. Um, in fact, I think maybe what we should do is take a break right here. We'll come back. We'll play a clip from this, uh, and we'll let the uh, panelists uh, talk a little bit about how this whole series landed with them. All right. How to with John Wilson is a six part HBO uh, documentary series. I, I probably should have said that the Fran Lebowitz series, Pretend It's a City, is on Netflix. Uh, so you're not hunting around for it all day. Uh, it came out in the fall. Uh, it was uh, kind of a well, it built a very strong following fairly quickly. Uh, it's a very improbable hit. The um, we, we essentially never see John Wilson. He's always behind the camera, but he's talking to us all the time, uh, talking to us always kind of in the second person to his narration is kind of so maybe you would do this and maybe you would do that and perhaps this would happen to you Uh, anyway let's hear a little bit of how to with john wilson this is from episode one how to make small talk do you have something set up oh yeah guy's 28 years old he knows that i'm 15 and told him to bring condoms and he's gonna try to meet me for sex it seems like when you're having small talk it's okay to lie if it helps you avoid uh getting too personal because that can be a real turnoff 
And I had people just vent their problems, like my mother-in-law's in the hospital or my girlfriend just cheated on me. And those are the people like, I, well, I'm not here for a conversation like that. And I just block them and go to the next one. But in the middle of our conversation, his plans fell through. Damn it. But now he's saying he doesn't want to do it. And he's bailing out at the last second. Like the best I could say is like, okay, thanks for wasting my day. I took school off today. So I guess try not to say too much or else you might scare someone away. Because the more you talk to someone, the harder it is to hide who you really are. I should have set that up better. The guy that he's talking to is this kind of semi-muscular, heavily tattooed guy. He's met at some other kind of weird event who claims to be in the business of catching sexual predators, although it's difficult to sort of say, like, who might be asking him to do that. Um, but, but anyway, um, I told you this is going to be a very hard thing to describe. So uh, on the panel today, as I said before, Jacques Lamar uh, and Irene Papoulis, original gangster nose panelists. They were on the first episode. So... Um, so, Irene, get us going on this. Uh, I think you would probably agree. It's not easy to describe what this is or what its peculiar charms are, but I think it's easy to agree that there's something very fascinating going on here. Yeah, let's see. Well, I, I sort of had a segue with what Jacques just said about okay. Fran, because I was thinking that her, the thing about her is she doesn't feel that honest. It doesn't feel like you're talking about someone who's really telling you about her herself on some kind of deep level. Whereas this guy, John, um, I feel like I understand his, his inner pain, you know, in a way that I would never understand Fran Lebowitz's, you know, and, and I think that's interesting. And he does that by constructing, you know, by his, through his interactions with other people, but in doing that, he tells us a lot about himself. We learn a lot about himself as well. Um, I don't know how much of it is, you know, like that guy that sort of, you know, catches sex sexual predators. Did he really? It seems like a lot of the events that he describes, he goes somewhere and he sees a guy in a supermarket and the guy tells him something. So then the next thing you know, he's at the guy's house or office, you know, so he follows he follows people. To, you know, he followed somebody to Idaho, you know, he follows, you know, he, he, he just kind of like looks around at the world and gets engaged with other people's with strangers lives. Right. I but mean, he, not, he, yeah, he apparently yeah. is very, very willing to, I mean, we should actually sort of the, the thing that you're referring to is worth describing. So yes, uh, he <laughs> is, um, I think, originally trying, I mean, these things kind of are these strange ladders that go in places. So I think that's on a, a thing about how to improve your memory. So somebody tells him that a good way to improve your memory is to kind of set up a mental supermarket. Uh, and then you sort of pick up the things that you are the, uh, on the list of things that you're trying to remember the way you pick them up. So he goes to a supermarket and he winds up talking to this guy who's not actually shopping there. He has something to do with stocking the shelves. And that guy starts to tell him that reality is not really what it appears to be that, for example, stovetop stuffing used to say Stouffer's on the front of it. Febreze used to be spelled a different way, but there's no way to prove these things. And, and this actually does cause him to follow that guy to Idaho to a conference of people who have this thing that uh, they, they believe in this thing. It's called the Mandela effect or the Mandela syndrome, where uh, you believe that things have changed from the way that they were, but there's no way to prove it. Uh, the idea of maybe being in a multiverse is is the most likely culprit. So 
so so <laughs> and these people really believe it too they're not they're not playing yeah right so i well and so jacques i mean I don't know. It's hard to even talk about what it is that knits something like that together. It's sort of this incredibly vulnerable, good-natured, reedy voice of this kind of sad sack guy who is narrating and filming the entire time. Yeah, and I thought, um, you know, I, I I loved this series and all the ways that I didn't. The the um, even though the the focus is a bit the same, you know, in terms of looking at the quotidian existence of the New Yorker. And obviously they, they exist at different strata. Um, but, you know, when she's talking about cab rides and subway rides and bus rides and whatnot, and he's, you know, and he's kind of documenting, you know, the city on the, on the ground level, uh, you know, where she's looking at plaques and these great buildings, he, and he's looking at rats and, um, you know, people doing kind of, uh, you know, sideshow uh, acts on the sidewalk. But, you know, I, I found at first, I was like, I couldn't tell if his voice, the haltering, stammering thing was a put on. Um, but then I watched an interview with him and it didn't seem like it was completely off from how he is. <laughs> and, you know, I, I don't know that I'd want to necessarily spend much time with him either. But he was better company to me in a way, mm-hmm. and and um and I loved his cockeyed view of New York, and that you know these people who you would see as eccentrics or what have you that there was uh, that he stood back and let them talk for themselves, mm-hmm. and uh, and that they were endearing in their eccentricities. I don't yes. know. It was I, I. I found it a really sweet show and one where I found myself laughing a lot. I, I do want to say, just you know, apropos of the Colin McEnroe show itself, that w- there's a kinship that I think Jonathan McPants and I both feel with John Wilson, although we're not, you know, we're not doing what he's doing. But for example, we did do an entire show about multiverse theory, and we did deal with something that comes up specifically <laughs> in the John Wilson thing, which is that the Berenstain Bears used to be the Berenstain Bears. That's what people believe. They believe somehow or other it got changed, or they were in a different cell of the multiverse where things were spelled differently, like Febreze and Berenstain and stuff like that. We've dealt with those people. And in in the uh, episode that I think may, Jacques may have found the most riveting, which is the one about how to cover furniture, um, one, of the things, one of the things that John Wilson does is he, he sort of, well, he's in the middle of doing something about how to cover f- furniture with plastic, and he sees something, and he goes, well, that's kind of like what I'm talking about. Uh, and he's, I think, a little bit liberal in his willingness to analogize, but he runs into an anti-circumcision activist, um, we did an entire show with anti-circumcision activists who I would have to say were the most unpleasant people I have ever dealt with on the radio. <laughs> they were horrible, horrible, horrible people. And I was a little bit envious because the guy that he winds up hooking up with, so to speak, who's a guy who's in fact trying to restore his own foreskin <laughs> using this strange tugging device, and which we get to witness. Which you get yeah. to witness and writes music about it on this strange <laughs> device that he then performs. You know, Irene, that guy was, well, I, I kind of liked him. I would, I, if I were John Wilson, I would have thought, I've struck gold. This guy is terrific. Absolutely. And also, he didn't do it. He wasn't making fun of him when he was filming him. You know, he was just like, okay, this is his reality, you know. 
And he had this whole thing rigged up to his bed with wires and everything. And yeah, that's what he's doing, you know? And I, I, I really like that too, because so many people filming that would have just been laughing at him, you know? And we can laugh at him if we want to, but he's not laughing at him. And I think that's a really good thing. And, but, and the other thing too, is that each episode is very, very, very constructed, which I loved, you know? So that was in the episode about covering furniture, you know? And so it, you know, you can imagine a connection between <laughs> trying to trying to trying to restore um, your pre-circumcised self with covering furniture. You know, it's it's it, he makes it work as a as, as an idea that car- that threads through the whole episode, and he does that with scaffolding. He does it with you know he does it with all his episodes, and that's one of the things I love the most because it seems like he has all this footage of things in New York, but he makes you know, a, a, a pizza on the ground in New York City fit with whatever it is that he's talking about. He really uses that footage to, to weave together something, of, you know, of the theme of each of each episode. Shaka, I'm just going to let you respond. Uh, well, you know, I, you know, the, the guy with the tug and whatever it was called, um, whether it's the, the guy in the first episode who, it was hard to figure out if that was his job or his hobby catching pedophiles mm-hmm. um, or the guy on the last episode who invites him into his home to teach him how to make risotto. Like <laughs> if we are to believe the footage, he literally just wanders down the street, finds someone <laughs> with an Italian flag, goes to their backyard. <laughs> and suddenly we're in the kitchen of this man who is hilarious hilarious right. a man whose kitchen for some reason or other is upstairs from everything else and whose wife is like in a lawn chair down below and he's just there's nothing in the kitchen that he actually needs to make risotto so he's constantly going monica get this salt, bring the salt up here uh and then he's stirring this risotto like he wants to kill it um and, and, and then we're in his dining room looking at this art and talking about his theory of aliens and it's you know, I I just loved this, you know, this crazy journey that each episode takes you on and how he brilliantly uses footage that isn't necessarily exactly what he's talking about, but in his cockeyed universe illustrates the point that he's trying to make, you know, and he's... Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Sorry. I was just going to say, it's kind of like a different kind of New York City fantasy. Because I know that when I lived in New York and I would walk around and I would see interesting people, but I rarely got to go into their lives. So another fantasy is that you're just going to, like at one point he says, you know, if, if you're not happy, you can just open a door and see what's behind it. Maybe it'll be something better which is what he actually does. So he, he has this ability to, to get involved with those, with those odd people that you see on the street and you, you might wonder about and then never see again, but he would actually talk to them and then go back to their house, you know, which is, which is another wonderful fan, New York City fantasy. I, I do want to say that, that, Irene, one of the things that I think also absolutely redeems him is there is just, you know, a poignance that he never strays all that far from. So in the first episode, yes, it's all about making small talk, but he winds up in Cancun at a horrible like MTV spring break <laughs> weekend, but he kind of latches on to this kind of sad guy who doesn't really seem to know why he's there. He's kind of posing as a fun-loving fellow. His name is Chris. 
but he's not. He's clearly not having fun or really all that fun loving. Uh, and John Wilson winds up sharing his trauma. And we, it, the bookends of the series are that. And then this incredibly tender relationship that John Wilson appears to have with his very, very aged landlady. He refers to her as his landlord, but this um, old woman is wearing sort of a babushka kind of thing. And he's always trying to figure out how to make food for her. And he's very worried about her. And, and in the middle of all that, the COVID crisis starts and, and unfolds in front of John Wilson's camera. And I mean, I thought, you know, the soft, creamy center of this guy is the soft, creamy center of this series, which makes it it never does have the kind of snobbery that we might have to deal with from from Fran Lebowitz. Right. That's what I mean. Like he really he he really cares about other people and 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 wants to connect with them uh, in and in a way that Fran is it's in that sense, it's the opposite of Fran. Um, the guy, I just have to say that guy in Cancun, I just loved because when we first meet him, you just think, oh my gosh, this is a guy I have to get a kind of guy I have to get away from, you know, he's drunk and he's like, yeah, let me tell you this rap that I did, you know, but then, and it, it, there's this moment where he says, um, he says, look, why did you come here? Oh, I came here to fall in love. No, I'm just kidding. You know? And just that moment was so great. Like, obviously, of course, when you go to, when you go to Cancun by yourself, and you're single, you probably think maybe I'll fall in love, you know, but he, he couldn't admit it, but he sort of could. And we got to see it. And we got to see in because John was, was seeing something about him. He sees other people in a, into their vulnerability. And, and, and that connects with his own. Yeah. The thing about the landlord who he called mama. Um, yeah. I mean, there's just so much to, there, there, yeah. In, in a way, I'm just saying yes to all those things. But that, and the fact that COVID started right at the end was really interesting too. I thought, you know, sort of the very beginning of it. And then he brings us into how that felt back in March in New York as, as people were pulling away from each other. And, and what he really wants is connection. Like it's all about wanting to connect. And so the fact that he couldn't, and then the regret and all that. Yes. Mm. Yes. And I think this series is very much about saying yes. You know, I mean, that's very much John Wilson's technique. Do you want to go look at this bust of John John F. Kennedy that I made? Yes, I, I would like to go look at that. <laughs> yeah. so, um, so, Jacques, you know, at the end, you know, and we've invoked or you've invoked Twain a few times here. You know, one of the struggles of humor, I think, is or of comedy is, are we going to just laugh at other people? Are we going to laugh at things that uh, are not like us or strike us as stupid? Uh, is there some other way uh, of going at this? Because comedy actually can be rather harsh and rather cruel. Uh, I mean, it can also be very, very funny while it's being those things. And, you know, I don't think I've ever seen anybody solve the problem in such an elaborate way as John Wilson does. I mean, this series is frequently very funny and sometimes very funny at the expense of certain people who uh, seem fairly unwitting. But it just, I don't know, somehow or other, because he's so vulnerable, I guess, it doesn't ever seem exploitive. I, I don't know. What's your take on that? Well, you know, I uh, as Irene was talking about, you know, his, his how he approaches the people. Fran Liebwood series where she she goes on you know an extended rant that's that's actually pretty funny about you know a bus driver who doesn't know what stop <laughs> is closest to 27th <laughs> Avenue and she's outraged that this person whose job is to do nothing but drive the bus and stop at pre you know prescribed stops does cannot give her this information 
And I thought where she is raging at the bus driver, that John Wilson would follow the bus driver home and have dinner with him. And <laughs> there yeah. lies the difference um, for me. And, you know, and John Wilson's love of kind of the out, out, the outcast in a way sort of reminds me of like John Waters or Tennessee Williams in having this, you know, affection for the people who live on the margins. And John Waters absolutely makes us laugh at those people. But at the same time, you can tell he adores the divines and uh, the Miss Edies and these other characters that that um, have their eccentricities, but have their own kind of beauty to them and dignity in a way. All right, the series is How To with John Wilson. There's six episodes for you to watch. There's a second season green-lighted already. Uh, and oh, that's a very good question, Kat. I have no idea. Um, <laughs> I'll tell you what. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk a little bit about a song that's number one uh, in America right now. I think what will happen right now is if you'll just um, hear a little bit of that song right now. Um, here we go. But I've never felt this way for no one. And I just can't imagine. How you could be so okay now that I'm gone Cause you didn't mean what you wrote in that song about me All right, lickety split. I got to thank uh, Kat Pastor. She's the technical producer of this. She's the one who's having to deal with all my scrambled, uh, not following the outline decisions here. And she's doing it expertly. Uh, and the person who put the whole show together only to have me to only to have me rip it apart into other kinds of pieces. Jonathan McPants is the producer of this episode. Our guests today, our panelists are Jacques Lamar and Irene Papoulis. We're going to just take a really quick moment before we do any endorsements to listen to the song I talked to at the t- talked about at the top of the show. It's the number one song on the Billboard charts. It has been for two weeks. It's by somebody who's never had a song out before. That essentially does not happen. It's called Driver's License. Let's hear a little bit of it. My driver's license last week Just like we always talked about Cause you were so excited for me To finally drive up to your house But today I drove through the suburbs Crying cause you weren't around And you're probably with that blonde girl Who always made me doubt She's so much older than me She's everything I'm insecure about Yet today I drove through the suburbs Cause how could I ever love someone else? And I know we weren't perfect But I've never felt this way for no one And I just so that is uh, Olivia Rodrigo. Um, she uh, it would have been best known prior to this uh, for her participation on a Disney Plus series based on High School Musical. It's possible, probable, perhaps even factual, that this song is pretty directly based 
on a an actual love triangle among performers on on uh, this particular Disney Plus series, a love triangle in which, as you can probably tell, she didn't come out on the winning end, uh, and it's uh, sweeping the country. This song, so. Uh, we obviously are not the target audience. I should also say, when she said she got her just got her driver's license, she did this song when she was seventeen years old. So she's not kidding. Um, so, Irene, what is there that people of our generation might have to say about this particular song? <laughs> uh, well, we might say we don't like it, which is my first reaction. But even listening to it again now for the fourth maybe time now I'm hearing it, I like it more, and I sort of feel the you know, the comparison to nothing compares to you, like it's sort of that same, and it's, you know, at first I would say nothing compares to you is a million times better than this. And you would be but correct. And I'd be correct, right? But I sort of start to understand the appeal, like when I was in high school, maybe I, I'm, I don't know if I w- even would have liked it when I was in high school. But, um, but, the, and I, you know, her voice doesn't do anything for me. And that one note doesn't do much for me either, that r- repeated piano note. Um, so I, I I can't say too much. That's really I, I think it's fascinating that that they that all the kids love it mm-hmm. uh, so much. And um, from what I've read about that, you know, that somebody did a TikTok from the point of view of a, the driver's the license itself. You know, you got me yesterday and then you left me at home. You know, mm-hmm. is funny. You know, and so the whole idea that a song could be not about so much the song itself, but about the whole cultural scaffolding around it. I think it's kind of interesting. Oh, that was nicely put. Um, all right, Jacques, uh, you might be getting the final word about this song. Uh, I, I would just say I, I uh, have gotten kind of sucked into it and the greater <laughs> kind of narrative around it and the fact that the other two uh, sides of the love triangle have released response songs and in one instance released two response songs. Um, so, uh, I, I found myself kind of pulled into the little microcosm that is, uh, driver's license. All right. Um, I, I, I have to say, I listened to it and I thought, well, there's like a Phoebe Bridgers song that's like this probably, but just a lot better because it's by Phoebe Bridgers. Uh, and, um, I'll leave it at that. Uh, <laughs> I'm saying that just so I, you don't, I don't sound like this old guy who doesn't listen to any, any new music as I do, but, uh, I just don't. And this didn't really do very much. It doesn't me. mean you have to like everything that the young people like, right? This is true. This is true. Anyway, Olivia Rodrigo, uh, uh, God bless you. You have a number one song. Uh, how many of us can say that? All right. So it's time to make some endorsements or some recommendations, uh, things you might like that our panelists know about. Here we go. Uh, Irene, you go first. All right. So uh, in my constant quest for podcasts that are not about politics. I've been listening to My Seven Chakras, which is this guy, he's an Indian guy who lives in Canada, and he loves to give you breathwork meditations and interview people that are talking about various self-help things. And it's just, it's just, I find it very soothing. It's called My Seven Chakras. But also the book that I just finished reading is one that James Hanley actually recommended before. It's called The Lying Lives of Adults by Elena Ferrante. And it's so, I love it so much because it's so, I I loved her other books. Um, She's an Italian writer. No one knows exactly who she is. And she wrote those four books, starting with my brilliant friend. Um, And those were good, but they were very rambling in terms of of their construction. And this one is much more tightly constructed as a novel. And it's really about the relationship between people's inner lives and, and what's on the outside, the lying life of adults, you know, it's about a young girl who's, who's, who's an adolescent growing up, but it's just a wonderful novel. Jacques, so. uh, you've got about a minute or so. 
Um, I know that I'm really late to the party, but uh, Arthur and I, my husband, have been binging every episode of the Great British Baking Show and absolutely love it and have started baking again. So um, that's what I'm endorsing this week. All right. Uh, I'm going to quickly endorse a, a documentary called The Booksellers, which has in it, big surprise, Fran Lebowitz, uh, who if she's in any more <laughs> movies, she's going to have to be in the Marvel Cinematic Universe as, smoke, as smoking woman or something, uh, but it's a really a terrific series about uh, about booksellers who sell you know antiquarian kind of books. Uh, but the the personalities are just terrific, and it's really ultimately uh, a documentary about change uh, and about about the changing landscape of, of everything, including old books. And I, I should say I'm, I'm moderating a panel about this for the Greenwich Friends of the Greenwich Library or something tonight, and they are paying me thirty five thousand dollars to do this. So. <laughs> Uh, I feel like I, should I wouldn't leave listen. West Hartford for less. <laughs> I know. Absolutely. Well, I'm zooming. I, nobody goes anywhere. Nobody leaves or goes anywhere anymore. So anyway, thanks very much to wonderful and original panelists, Jacques Lamar and Irene Papoulis. And uh, we will be back on Monday with the scramble. Talk about everything as a matter of fact. Oh, yeah. Talk about Torrington, Vernon, Danbury, Waterbury, Oliveberry. Woodbury, hitting on New Britain, Vernon, I already said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah.